History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History of Persia, episode 61, Given Against the Demons. So, long time, no speak. I moved house this past month, and I lost my microphone. In the boxes. As I'm sure you know, losing the one thing you need to make all of your job work is extremely professional. I basically recorded the ad for Anchor and put the mic in a box, then didn't see it again for over a month. But we're back, and I have been working on the podcast in the meantime. So there's now a great backlog of scripts, which should be fun over the next couple of weeks. If you support the show on Patreon, I'll finally be doing all of the catch-up I promised a while back. Upcoming bonus episodes include... A Provinces episode on Achaemenid Europe, revisiting the campaigns of Cyrus the Great, and some more historical fiction reviews. You can check that out at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Even if you're not subscribed, always remember you can head over to Patreon to listen to my audiobook recording of The Gothas, and my review of the second 300 movie, 300 Rise of an Empire, is still available for free, so go check all of that out on Patreon. Anyway, back to business. Last time, I jumped back to sometime just after Xerxes became king to talk about the Diva inscription, a mysterious and complicated royal inscription found at Persepolis and Pasargadae, which tells the story of an unspecified military campaign. More importantly than the campaign itself, at least for propaganda purposes, was how Xerxes discovered and destroyed a sanctuary dedicated to the Diva, 
the false gods banned by Zoroaster's teachings. Scholars have speculated about the inscription ever since it was discovered. Was it just a generic template? Was it about Egypt, Babylon, maybe even Greece? In my interpretation of the evidence, a diva cult that needed to be crushed means somewhere in the east, maybe Bactria, or somewhere in that region. With all that talk about diva, I thought it would be worthwhile to try and understand what exactly Xerxes and his contemporaries might have believed about these false gods that are often reduced to demons in English translation. Surprisingly, this is one of the few religious questions where the answers are probably coming from the Achaemenid period, or at least close enough. The answer is mostly that the diva were beings who created corruption, who made things become associated with druge, that great cosmic force of lies and disorder that sits opposite of Asha, the cosmic order that Ahura Mazda wants for the universe. Today, we're talking about the Vendidad. You'll also hear that said as Videvdat or Videvdad. They're all the same thing, and they're all different Middle Persian contractions of a young Avestan title. The V Divodata, a phrase meaning given against the Diva. What exactly is being given against the false gods? Well, laws. The Vendidad is a complicated text with elements of mythology and history, but above all else, it is a religious law code. If you're more familiar with the Judeo-Christian tradition, it's often compared to Leviticus. Listeners familiar with Leviticus are probably groaning right now. Much like Leviticus, the Codex Justinianus, the U.S. Constitution, or any other legal document ever composed, the Vendidad is unreasonably boring. At least it is if you're not a giant nerd who's happy to learn about ancient culture. Or at least it's boring if you try to read it as literature. Like other law codes, it's not meant to be read all the way through for fun or enlightenment. It's a reference guide, meant to be looked at to clarify a legal, or in this case religious, point. Due in part to the ancient religious context, the Vendidad has another similarity with Leviticus in particular. Almost all of these laws are about maintaining ritual purity. As a law code, we're also going to bump into some rough topics. There's a lot about dead bodies, some animal abuse, a short section about sexual assault, and all the other bits of societal violence that people legislate against. We're also dealing with the social regulations of a 2,500-year-old culture, and with that come some of the more predictable elements of ancient society and modern society, women, any sexuality that's not reproductive, and other marginalized groups don't tend to get a great shake in ancient law codes, and the Vendidad is not different. But we'll be getting to all of that in time. I've been talking about Zoroastrianism on and off for a long time now, both as part of Achaemenid history and on its own. So I think everyone listening to this should have 
a basic idea of what Zoroastrian ritual purity would entail. Basically everything in the universe, both physical and spiritual, living or dead, is divided between cosmic truth and order, known as Asha, and its opposite, the evil lie known as Druge. When talking about ritual purity in a Zoroastrian context, what I mean and what historians mean is practices intended to remove Druge or become more in line with Asha. Most things that are innately aligned with Asha, such as the sacred elements of fire, water, earth, and Homa, can be corrupted by substances that align with Druge, dead tissue being one of the most common examples. People can be corrupted or protected in many ways, and perform ceremonies to purify or protect themselves, and the things around them. Druge is spread and encouraged by the Daiva, false gods and evil spirits, that have aligned themselves with Druge rather than Asha, and are therefore scorned by the great god Ahura Mazda. These malevolent forces were corrupted themselves by Angramainu, the evil spirit who sits opposite, though ultimately lesser than, Ahura Mazda in traditional Zoroastrian belief. When we last checked in with Zoroastrianism in the immediate wake of the prophet Zoroaster's lifetime, Angramainu was not actually part of the religion yet. At least, he was not identified by name. Similar concepts were already floating around in the Gothas, but Angramainu only appears by name in the younger Avestan texts, which came later. And I feel the need to point this out because the evil spirit is very present in the Vendidad. So, when was this text given against the Daiva? Well, welcome to one of the more complicated questions for the secular study of the Avesta and Avestan language, because apparently this thing is weird and requires looking both a few hundred years back in the narrative and about a thousand years forward. We've talked about it before, but just as a refresher, the Avesta, as it exists today, was organized and written down under the Sassanid dynasty, the second great dynasty to rise out of Persia and rule an Iranian empire beginning in the 3rd century CE, after a long period of Greek and later Parthian rule. There are several historical accounts of the Avesta being written down in earlier periods, which I'll deal with some other time. If it was written down at an earlier point, then those written copies were not widespread and may even have been translated out of Avestan. Writing and having a written tradition alters a language, but Avestan shows no sign of that prior to the Sassanid version of the text, which also led to the invention of an Avestan script still used today. All the evidence suggests that the Avesta was preserved primarily as an oral tradition, among a small class of religious leaders for most of its history. The one thing historical accounts and linguistic evidence can agree on is that by the time the Sassanids wrote it down, this oral tradition was failing. Large swaths of Avestan prayers, hymns, and ceremonies had been forgotten over time, and the Vendidad is a perfect example of the problem. 
Of course, I don't read Avestan, so I'm relying on other people's commentaries here, but cut me a little slack if you can. I can only handle so many languages at a time, and I'm currently trying to learn enough German to complain about dead archaeologists. Some translations try to reconcile the grammatical problems, but the Avestan version of the text is very clearly not the product of a native speaker. Obviously, the creator knew the meaning of the words well enough to string ideas together, but the grammatical structure is all over the place. Individual phrases are perfectly coherent, but anything more than a clause or two and grammatical gender, tense, number of subjects, or grammatical mood can vary wildly. The best theory to emerge from centuries of linguistic examination is that the Vendidad we have now is actually a desperate attempt to compile disparate Avestan phrases that people had memorized all in one place. Different phrases used to describe and explain ritual purity were strung together to form a coherent idea, but the people making the compilation only had a loose understanding of the Avestan language. They were relying on phrases they memorized by rote, not coming up with original material. Of course, that original material was ideologically consistent and dealt with related topics. Linguistically, it's all from the same rough phase of the language's development. So when trying to date the Vendidad, we're actually dealing with two dates. The day when it was arranged in its current form, and the date when someone, probably someones, first came up with these phrases. The compilation of the Vendidad itself is almost impossible to date. People who had memorized Avestan but didn't fully understand the language probably existed almost as soon as Zoroastrianism spread beyond its initial Avestan-speaking community, especially given the oral tradition of the scripture. At one point, historians suspected that the measurements used in this text were derived from Greek measurements. But with more archaeology, it became increasingly clear that the Achaemenids and Babylonians had long since used similar measurements to the Greeks, and there's no reason to assume they originated in Greece. So ruling measurements out as a way to choose a date for when all of these phrases came together the best we can do is say that it was either a few centuries or at least a few disasters after the phrases were first composed. When was that is a hard question. The traditional best guess is based on equally flimsy evidence. For the last 200 years or so, the theory was that the Vendidad, or its constituent parts, must have been created by the Magi of the Median and Achaemenid Empires. The assumption was that the text regulated and explained ritual purity, so it must have come from the Zoroastrian religious leaders that the Greeks described as extremely concerned with ritual purity. Of course, the Greeks also had an extremely limited and often inaccurate understanding of the Magi, and there's no reason to assume that their assessment of a Persian and Median caste would be the source of Avestan rites. That said, the linguistic projections 
would still place the original composition sometime just before or early in the Achaemenid period. The place names don't really indicate anything about Western Iran and stay pretty consistent with earlier Eastern Iranian names from the rest of the Avesta, so it was probably composed in the intersection of Iran, Tajikistan, and Afghanistan, or in that general region at least. So we're dealing with a compilation of lines from sometime around, say, 600 BC, that were poorly remembered and gathered together sometime after 330 BC, and written down in their current form around 300 CE. This extremely late and fragmentary backstory is used by many more reform or liberal-minded modern Zoroastrians to dismiss the Vendidad outright. The factual history of the text is a convenient escape from some of the more controversial, ancient, and burdensome religious laws contained within. Some even go so far as to rule out anything from outside the Gothas, but that's a topic for another time, and maybe a better informed guest speaker. The important thing to note for modern Zoroastrianism today is the late date and controversial content leave the Vendidad relatively unpopular. The Vendidad as it exists today is typically divided as 22 chapters or fargards, but the oldest manuscript skip over chapter 12, and the version of chapter 12 included in quote-unquote complete modern translations is a much later composition, possibly as late as the 1700s, so I'll be skipping over it. Since Zoroastrian orthodoxy dictated that all divine revelations came to Zoroaster from Ahura Mazda, the whole Vendidad is framed with the prophet asking questions to his god. Chapter 1 is a story of creation, specifically how Ahura Mazda created 16 lands and how Angramainu created plagues to corrupt each in turn. Of those 16, nine have names that are easily recognized as historical names ranging from the city of Raga in eastern Media to Hapta Hindu, which is obviously India. The majority of those nine names can be identified with places in northeastern Iran and Central Asia. An additional four were identified in Sassanid and medieval Zoroastrian commentaries. Three of these seem reasonable and fit into the existing scheme of northern Iran and Central Asia. The fourth, called Ranga in Avestan, was identified with Mesopotamia, but that's questionable for reasons I'll get into here. Two more don't have any firm identities. Chakra is a complete mystery, and Nisaya could refer to several different viable cities. But the first land created by Ahura Mazda was, of course, Aryanam Vaija, literally the land of the Aryans. And it is interesting to see how that name moves around. Most modern scholars follow linguistic evidence from the Avesta 
and think the name originally meant somewhere in the east of the Iranian world, around what is now western Afghanistan. By the Sasanid period, and forever after in Zoroastrian tradition, it was identified with the area of modern Azerbaijan. My translation specifically identifies the recently war-torn region of Karabakh. But if we're following the logic of the names used in the Vendidad, the composers of this creation myth didn't leave much space for it. Central Parthia is unaccounted for, but the rest of the names fall into a convenient band across the northern Iranian world. So there are three possibilities. 1. Aryanam Vija was imagined as somewhere in the periphery. 2. We're just not understanding the geography, and there's actually a space between some of the other lands listed, and Aryanam Vija was actually seen as a relatively small territory. To me, this seems most unlikely. One possible translation of Vija is literally expanse. 3. The exact location was already being left deliberately vague, as the original Aryanem Vija was forgotten, if it was ever a real place at all. And this is the one that makes the most sense to me. The periphery explanation also seems implausible, but takes some more argument. The far north, west, and east all seem unlikely, because based on the areas described, these were not Zoroastrian lands. The northern Sakai and eastern Indians may have been Aryan to some, but they worshipped in a foreign and probably Divic way. The west wasn't Iranian at all, and Zoroastrianism only just began spreading in Azerbaijan and the Caucasus during the Achaemenid period. They may have been firmly entrenched later, but would have been a weird place to identify Zoroaster's homeland in the 6th century BC. That leaves the south, which is a lot of desert, and Persia. The chapter actually ends with the declaration that there are other lands that are beautiful and awaiting the spread of good religion, but they are not part of Ahura Mazda's 16 perfect lands. From a certain perspective, Placing immense importance on Persia right around the time of the Achaemenids is really tempting. However, there is absolutely nothing else to indicate Persian or Elamite influence in the Vendidad, which makes that less likely. It's the same reason I don't really believe the Middle Persian identification of Ranga with Mesopotamia. It was important later but completely disconnected from the other lands in the Vendidad. Southern and Western Iran seem to have been largely foreign to the composer. But the real importance of Chapter 1, to the people composing it, was in Angra Minus curses, which represent both what ancient Zoroastrians thought of as divine evil blights on humanity, and factor into purity law. They also represent some of what the composers thought about the contemporary social situation and criticisms of the different regions of Iran. I won't list them all in detail, but here are some of the highlights. 
In response to Arianem Vaija, Angra Mainyu is described as the source of death and the creator of serpents on riverbanks, as well as winter itself, which I've discussed how that was evil before. Sogdia yielded locusts. Merv yielded plunder and sin. Bactria led to the existence of ants. Aria led to the creation of tears and wailing. Kabul, which was largely Hindu at the time, led to idolatry. Angramainu created witchcraft to blight Helmand, and cannibalism for chakra. Irregular menstrual cycles were apparently a curse made special for Tabaristan. My personal favorite, Angramainu invented excessive heat for the Indus Valley. The final entry is Ranga, the one I don't think is Mesopotamia, which is really just a bookend because Angramainu created winter for a second time. Chapter 2 won't get much attention today because it deserves more attention later. It is another creation myth, the story of the first man, Yima, later known as Jamshid, the paradise at the beginning of creation, and the subsequent destruction of the earth by a terrible winter, where Yima takes on a bit of a deluge myth Noah's Ark role. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Chapter 3 is eclectic. The first two sections are a Q&A between Zoroaster and Ahura Mazda, 
where the prophet asks which places are best and worst in the world. Rather than naming specific lands, the answers describe good and bad ways of living. Good places have priests, successful agriculture and herding, and proper ritual practice. The absolute worst place is the gates of hell, which, okay, fair. But after that, the answers are equally descriptive. Evil places are the sites of burials and tombs, places where pests created by Angramainu burrow into the earth, places where Zoroastrians are enslaved. The happiest people are those who combat evil things. This hatred of tombs is probably more good evidence that the content of the Vendidad wasn't tied politically to the Achaemenids, who definitely loved their tombs. After that, there is an extended tirade against the sin of carrying a corpse alone, which probably actually means carrying a corpse outside of an official ceremony. As punishment for this, the sinner must live outside of the community until they are elderly, at which point they are to be decapitated and are retroactively absolved of their sins if they happen to live that long. That particular rule is followed by extended praise for agriculture, and then more punishments for sins, which are basically all whipping-based with different types of flogs. Bury the corpse of a human or a dog? You get between 1,000 and 2,000 lashes depending on how long it lies there. Wait too long, and you're exiled from the community. This chapter is fairly representative of the rest of the Vendidad. Lots of focus on ritual practice surrounding corpses, punishments are basically all associated with whippings, and it's never entirely thematically consistent. You get a little bit about proper ritual practice, you get a digression about agriculture, you get a little bit about punishment for sins, you get something entirely unrelated after that, and that's basically how the entire Vendidad works. This chapter is also one of the first clear critiques of defiling the earth with corpses, a practice that eventually became widespread in Zoroastrianism and well-known to the Greeks. In fact, most of the Vendidad is highly concerned with the treatment of corpses. Even the much later edition of chapter 12 is about mourning. The other recurring feature that might be more surprising is the importance of dogs. More on that in a minute, though. The text regularly returns to the topic of corpses and disposing of them, both for human corpses and animals in general, but always dogs in particular. If a corpse accidentally contacts something sacred, such as in water, fire, earth, a living person, or the sacred drink Homa, then no sin is committed. That same section, which explains this, also does the mental gymnastics to explain why water and fire can both kill people and be polluted by a corpse. The answer, they don't kill people. If you burn or drown, you are actually being killed by one of the diva. The same logic is actually applied to apostates and heretics. Obviously, no good creation of Ahura Mazda would be an apostate or a heretic, so they must have druge within their body, and when they die, the druge 
is dragged back to Engramainu, meaning the corpses revert to a base level of purity. Fire, in particular, is the most sacred, sacred element that could be polluted by a corpse, and the Vendidad prescribes specific woods and kindling that could be added to a fire used for cremation to purify it. The person who actually set fire to a corpse would be punished, and the one who purified it would be rewarded in their afterlife. To properly dispose of a body, it must be exposed to the animals and the elements to allow natural decomposition, in a structure called an uzdana built explicitly for this purpose. If it is winter and decomposition is slow or the requisite animals are absent, then a temporary storage site can be constructed until a better season for exposure. If a person is touching someone else, or a dog, when they die, then everyone above them in their own family hierarchy is also polluted. Dropping human or dog bones with flesh attached is to be punished based on the size of the bone. Once you are corrupted, the purification ceremony usually involves some kind of offering to a Horamazda and reciting lines from either the Gothas or some other part of the Avesta. Some of these lines are contained here within the Vendidad, and that is the only surviving evidence of them, but they're implied to be part of a larger tradition when the Vendidad was first composed. Punishment, as I said before, is basically always whipping. Flies and the resulting maggots that infest a rotting corpse are characterized as the Nasu Druge, literally the Druge of dead bodies and they are a particular type of evil. To negate the Nasu Druj, a dog was supposed to lead the funeral procession to dispose of the corpse, which would then be purified with a mixture of urine and water, which actually would be good for dispersing flies, especially because a dead person is not going to mind if there's urine on them. Many of these rituals and prohibitions have a physical action that visibly changes and purifies, but the Vendidad also prescribes priests reciting verses from the Gothas to ward off Nasu Druj. I do have to wonder if that ever worked. The prohibition on making contact with dead matter leads to an unfortunate bit of sexism, though I have to admit it almost makes sense in the context of these beliefs. A woman who miscarried and or has a stillbirth is polluted because of the dead infant and has to stay 30 paces away from any sacred elements in the community. To clarify that this is not intended as a punishment, the Vendidad does require that this exile be housed in the cleanest building available but it is treated with the same solution as a sin. A similar or related prohibition also carries over an additional burden for women. From this obsession with dead matter, it's not a huge leap to blood, and from there to menstruation. While on their period, women were required to stay 15 paces away from any sacred elements, and a child who touched their own menstruating mother was required to bathe. Similar corruption is placed on a man who has sex with a woman while she's menstruating, and maybe, more mercifully, just after she has given birth. 
If bleeding lasts longer than nine nights, the Vendidad recognized it as a sign for greater concern. Like basically all other problems in the Vendidad, this was attributed to a diva. Of course, because it just has to suck. This diva is blamed on the woman in question worshipping the diva. To purify her, three holes were dug. In the first two, she was bathed with plants and water in the third. Prohibitions on dead matter also carry over to anything removed from the body, including hair and nail trimmings, which immediately become corrupted by a diva after falling from the body. They had to be disposed of in a pit far away from any sacred element and prayed over to purify the debris. Even though dogs are treated on a similar level to humans in other respects, there is no discussion of how to deal with all the demons left behind by shedding. Speaking of dogs, let's talk about dogs because that's just so much more pleasant than dead bodies. Chapters 13 and 14 of the Vendidad are the last complete survivors of what was once apparently a whole genre of Zoroastrian literature. Literature about dogs. Humans are required to show gratitude to dogs, and two of the most important animals in civilization after the cow are the herd dog and the house dog. Sick dogs deserved the same attention as a sick person. Puppies had to be cared for at least up to six months. A pregnant or nursing dog receives the same treatment as a human woman, Punishment for harming a dog, whether a herding dog, a guard dog, a hunting dog, or a pet, was always severe, similar in capacity to assaulting or murdering a person. The trick is that this reverence for dogs extended well beyond what we consider dogs. Sixth century ancient Iranians didn't exactly have biological taxonomy to work with. As such, Hedgehogs are dogs with pointed noses and spiky backs, and otters are water dogs. Don't hurt the water dogs. The punishments for harming otters are aggressive. Let's say you kill, because you're a terrible person, a trained working dog in the community, an animal that acts as an important tool, companion, and protector of your invaluable herds. Well, that's 1,600 total lashes. You kill an otter? That's 20,000 lashes. No, I did not move the decimal point. You also have to bring 20,000 loads of purified wood to the fire altar and offer 10,000 libations to a horamazda. You also have to kill 90,000 various pests. That's not even the end of it. All of chapter 14 is about the punishments for killing a water dog. Basically, kill an otter and get condemned for life and made a servant to the community. There are also not-so-good boys in the Vendidad's conception of dogs. Tortoises, for whatever reason, get counted as dogs in here. They are portrayed as the opposite of a hedgehog, and killing tortoises is actually described as an act of personal redemption. Diseased or feral dogs are also in here. And what follows is absolutely animal cruelty, 
but it is intended to be seen as immense restraint. If a dog is biting without warning, it must be muzzled. A dog that kills a man is supposed to be put down. If the dog kills a sheep or wounds a man, its right ear is cut off. If it happens again, the left ear, then the right foot, then the left foot, the fifth time warrants cutting off the tail. There is really an effort to not kill the dog in here. Wolves aren't discussed in their own right. The Vendidad just kind of trusts that everyone in an agricultural or pastoral community 2,600 years ago would recognize wolves as bad. And to be fair, they did. It does prescribe dealing with a wolf-dog hybrid. If a she-wolf gives birth to the hybrid, that is worse than a female dog impregnated by a male wolf. Both cases are considered wolves and more violent than regular dogs, though, and the prescription for both is death. Of course, there's also crimes and punishments for more day-to-day -day infractions. Chapter 4 is probably the most legalistic. It starts with an explanation of how failure to pay debts is theft. There are six types of contracts, which must be fulfilled in specific ways and can be negated by a more important type of contract in an apparent hierarchy of contracts. A contract or pledge to say something can be negated by a contract to exchange labor, which in turn can be negated by exchanging different levels of livestock. If you break a contract, your kin up to 9 degrees of removal are held liable for the next 300 years which could realistically be everyone in a small community. The rest of the chapter deals with more conventional crimes, from assault to manslaughter to perjury, and all of those are attached to some declaration of when to give payment to other believers. Basically, committing crimes leads to beatings, and committing the same crime repeatedly gets successively more beatings, and hurting others requires restitution. No other chapter is so singularly about crime and punishment, but different examples, sometimes the same examples with different punishments, are tacked on to the longer, unrelated chapters throughout the text. Chapter 8 is mostly about the ritual preparation for a corpse, but in the middle is one of the sections that requires acknowledgement. It is the homophobic part. At first, I was intrigued because the Encyclopedia Ironica article on the Vendidad suggests that this actually refers to pederasty, the institutionalized relationship of an adult man with a young boy, which is different from pedophilia only in that it was considered legal at the time. That is an ongoing debate in interpreting biblical passages that have been used to condemn homosexuality especially some of the New Testament passages probably refer to pederasty rather than all homosexual activity. Upon further inspection, that's not the case here. The Vendidad specifically uses the word arshan, which means an adult man, and using the not-at-all-subtle euphemism, a man who makes another man tremble, condemns two men having sex to death. Well, not in every case. If it's a case of rape, the victim is only sentenced to 1,600 lashes. 
a potentially fatal beating for being the victim. Unlike many other sins in the Vendidad, there is no atonement. Ahura Mazda doesn't even offer an option. The only exception is if the person in question is a non-believer who converts. Then, literally anything and everything is forgiven once. That's the most interesting part of this section to me. Back in chapter 1, homosexuality was identified as a corruption Angramainu associated with the land of Hyrcania, and this exception for converts to the faith would seem to suggest that at least some cultures in the early Iranian world had no such prohibitions. And that's about where I want to start winding down the Vendidad. This episode was by no means comprehensive, and I haven't really touched on the last four chapters. Fargard's 18 through 22 contain many more narrative legends and mythological elements. There is a temptation of Zoroaster, an interview with the personification of Druge, the story of the first human physician, and the story of Angramainu creating diseases. The latter two are kind of parallel to each other. The Vendidad ends as it began, with Ahura Mazda enumerating good things, and then Angermainu creating blights that oppose them, this time in the form of medicine and disease. However, I want to give different attention to myths and legends at a different time, so we'll take a rain check on those last four Fargards. Next time, it is back to the narrative and back to Greece for the first half of the year 465 BC and the last great battle of Xerxes' Greek War. For the first time in 34 years, a major Athenian force will land on the Persian mainland, and there will be blood on the Eurymedon. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, you should go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my about page, my bibliography, a list of different apps you can list on, and the Achaemenid family tree down to the time of Alexander the Great. You will also find the support page, which has links to financially support this podcast. That includes affiliate links for things that I have advertised, one-time donation links that are scattered all over the website, and links to my Patreon at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. There you can sign up for a monthly subscription that gets you access to different perks at different tiers, including ad-free listening and bonus episodes. But the best way anybody can support the podcast is to share on social media, tell other people how great it is, and spread the word. On Facebook, you can find me at History of Persia Podcast. It's the same on Instagram and just History of Persia on Twitter. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.